0: Well, it is good to be back, um, First Christian Church in Clinton, and I did not know that um, the church paid for half of the camp. Why did you make me pay a full uh, <laughs> full week? There was a man by the name of Henry Stanley who was a fearless explorer of uncharted territory in Africa, and until Henry Stanley's extraordinary 1876 expedition of Africa it was assumed by many inside as well as outside of Africa that no one had really made, made it all the way down the Congo River with its gorges and its passes and its cannibals as well. Henry Stanley's extraordinary t- trip took 999 days and was filled with unimaginable hardships. There were uh, difficulties all along the way from the beginning to the end. One night, the difficulties began, got to be so, you know, so troubling that Henry Stanley and his good friend, uh, Frank Pocock, had to make a decision on what they were going to do. And so Stanley went to his best friend, his traveling partner, and said, Frank, we, we have to sit down tonight and we have to make a decision on whether we are going to continue going into the unknown, which could be very dangerous to our lives, our lives balance on this decision, Or we play it safe and go back home. So what they did that night is they flipped a coin. An Indian rupee deciding, you know, whether they would go. Heads, they would, you know, go into the great unknown, into the adventure of going down the Congo River. Tails, they would go home to safety. They flipped the Indian rupee and it came up tails. Not liking the results, they flipped the Indian rupee again. (laughs) It came up tails. How about three out of five? As a matter of fact, they flipped it again. Six times that coin came up tails telling them to go back home. So they drew straws. Long straw, they would go down the Congo River. Short straw, they would go back home. Every time they drew the straw, they drew a short straw. And it was decided at that very moment that Henry Stanley and Frank Pocock had already made up their mind and decided in their heart exactly what it was that God wanted them to do and where God wanted them to go. And because of their extraordinary adventure down the Congo River, they made history in the process. My reason for sharing that story with you this morning is simply this. We do not need to flip coins nor draw straws to know what's on the heart of Jesus Christ. He's already told us. As a matter of fact, to make sure that we would not forget exactly what was on his heart, he shared with us what was on his heart five times through the Gospels. Matthew chapter 28, 16 through 20, Mark 16, 15, Luke 24, 45 through 49, John 20, 21, and Acts chapter 1, 8. All of those passages, and each of those passages, commonly known as the Great Commission passages, Jesus basically gave basic instruction to the disciples before he ascended to the Father. And in essence, in all of those five passages, they can be pretty much summed up with, by using any one, but I'll use Mark chapter 16, verse 15, when Jesus said to the disciples, go into all the world and preach the good news. And that, my friends, is important to grasp, because if we follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then we must accept the responsibility of putting on our heart what was most important on his heart sharing the good news reaching out was a top pri- reaching out to the lost was a top priority to jesus and somehow some way we must make it a top priority for us as well And I believe the reason why Jesus made it a top priority in his life to reclaim the lost and reach out to the lost was because he understood the important fact that when reaching out to the lost and reclaiming the lost dies within the church, the church ceases to become the church. But the magic question is, how do we do that? How do we do that? How do we keep as a top priority personally in our life and corporately as a church That which was a top priority in Jesus' life. How do we really go out and reclaim the lost? Well, this morning I want to share with you three ways. If I'm correct, we're in a sermon series that Adam began last week called Created for Community. And this morning I want to share with you three, I believe, simple ways that we can reclaim the lost. And I want to do it by sharing a passage with you from 1 Peter chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles with you, if you would, open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, and um, I'm going to read verses, maybe your handout says verses 4 through 12. I'm just going to read for you verses 9 through 12 of 1 Peter uh, chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 12. Peter says, starting in verse 9, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in a world, to abstain from sinful desires that war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Three ways that you and I, that we can reclaim the lost. And the first way is this. We reclaim the lost when we remember who we are And whom we belong to. Who we are and whom we belong to. Peter, in this passage, describing basically you and me, basically saying we have been redeemed by Christ, he went on to use new terminology of who we are. And he said, We are living stones, we are a holy priesthood. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. In other words, what Peter was simply trying to point out by using this type of language is that we are a special community of people set apart for the specific purpose of serving God. Or maybe to put it in my own translation, we are a special community that is created for another community out there. We are a special community of people. We are a community that is created for community. But remember, Peter also said of us in this language that we are a holy nation, a people whom belong to God. And in verse 12, to emphasize what he was meaning there, he simply said to us, live such good lives. Let me tell you what I think Peter was hinting at there for you and I. He was really hinting at holiness. And holiness simply means to be set apart. And what we need to understand, if we are going to reclaim the lost, if we are going to reach out and put on our hearts what is a top priority on the heart of Christ, then we need to grasp that God wants us to live distinctively different from the other community around us. Yes, we are a community created for a community, but we are to be distinctively different from that other community, and that's exactly why the New Testament writers went to great lengths to point out all of the one another passages in the New Testament. You know, the one another, each other. Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, be devoted to one another in here. He said uh, in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, not only be devoted to one another, but honor one another. Paul said in Galatians 6, 2, carry each other's burdens. James 5, 9, here's an important one. Don't grumble against one another. James 5, 16, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. 1 Thessalonians 5, 11, here's an important one. Encourage one another. In other words, I think what the New Testament was basically saying is that true community, true Christian community is this. It's doing life together. It's doing life together. But all of that takes serious commitment and deep reflection and it comes more carries more with it than just attending an hour or two on Sunday morning. As a people belonging to God and a holy nation, we are to be a unique group of people that has a distinctiveness to us that's to be reflected in all areas of life. In other words, you understand that as a people belonging to God and a special community that is created for that community, we are to be distinct in how we handle our money and our possessions. We are to be distinct in the way that we conduct our relationships and how we raise our kids and the way we conduct ourselves at work and how we love the poor and serve the marginalized. As a chosen people belonging to God, we are called to show the world an alternative way of living and being a community in here. And I guess here's the ultimate point is this. When we are willing to live that way, it has a profound effect on the community out there. That's why Jesus called for his followers in Matthew 5.14 to be a city on a hill. It's to be on a hill so the community can look up to it and say, that's something different. That's what we are to strive for. And that's why Jesus, what he talked about in John 17 and why he prayed for unity in John 17, because Jesus understood that the unity of the church is highly missional. And yet sadly, most Christians today are so thoroughly of the world that those on the outside look in here and barely see any distinction between us and them. And so they move on down the road. And as a result, the church has little or no influence on those around them. And yet the fact remains, the New Testament clearly points out to us that God still calls for us to be deeply engaged in the world while at the same time not losing our distinctiveness. And what Peter is really you know, reminding us of is this, simply this. If you and I really want to reach out If you and I really want to impact our community, you know where it begins? It begins right in here. When we begin remembering who we are and whom we belong to. That's how we're going to impact, you know, the community out there. Is when we first and foremost remember who we are. It begins when we understand that God has created us as a special community for another community. And as the special community, we can impact lives when we simply start living the way that God desires us to live. It was a lady by the name of Daisy Sandano who cares about the Super Bowl. Matter of fact, she loves the Super Bowl. Her beloved Baltimore Ravens played uh, two years ago in the Super Bowl, if I'm correct, against the San Francisco 49ers. A few years before the Ravens made it to the Super Bowl, her fiancé proposed to her and asked her, would you please marry me? She said, yes, but one condition, when my beloved Ravens get back to the Super Bowl. And so last year, last year when, uh, or two years ago, when the Ravens defeated the Patriots and made it to the Super Bowl, their wedding date was set, the plans were made, and they were finally married. Surrounded by a bunch of Raven fans, there was no doubt about it that Daisy Sandano was a Ravens fan because she proudly wore the color of her team down the aisle. She walked down the church in a purple wedding dress. (laughs) Now the reason I tell you that story is simply this, for one reason. Without uttering a single word, she demonstrated to the world what was most important to her. Do you realize, my friends, that our communities can be greatly impacted for Jesus Christ without even uttering a single word? Do you realize that that we can demonstrate to a world what is really most important to us when they see in us a lifestyle that is distinctively different than theirs? Can you imagine the impact that we can have on the world? When they see a group of people in here who are willing to live differently by doing life together and praying for one another and caring for one another and where there's no pecking orders and we all get along. And that's what opens the door for us as a special community to say to the community out there, hey, come and see. Come and see and check us out. Reclaiming the lost begins when we first and foremost remember who we are and whom we belong to. But second, I think Peter reminds us this. We reclaim the lost by recognizing what we are to do. By recognizing what we are to do. See, Peter made it very clear that as God's chosen people in verse 9, we are to declare his praises. Now that word praises can actually be translated mighty acts. And it's interesting, isn't it? As a chosen people, our job is to tell other people about God's mighty acts. And and that's what really evangelism is, is it not? It's simply telling other people what Jesus Christ has done, did and has done in our life. Telling people how he brought about a transformation in our life. Telling our neighbors and our friends that, hey, you know, I was once blind, but now I can see. Telling our neighbors his mighty acts of how my life has changed dramatically from this over here to this over here. And that's what we are to do. That's really Evangelism 101. And that is to be the heartbeat of the church. And let's remember that declaring his praises can be done as simply as saying, come and see. Because that's, we have the example of that in John chapter 1, verses 45 through 46. It was Philip who found a man by the name of Nathanael and began telling Nathanael about the mighty acts of what Jesus, declaring his praises of what he had done in his life. Nathanael, being more of a skeptic, said, well, really, can anything good come from Nazareth? And Philip responded in John chapter 1, verse 46, with these words, Come and see. Come and see. He's made a difference in my life, and he'll make a difference in your life, so the first thing you need to do is come and see. That's it. No dissertation, no pressure, just a simple invite to come and see this guy who has transformed my life and made a difference in my life. And yet, unfortunately, most people in many churches take a different approach. I read the story the other day of a woman who found herself in a precarious position. She had locked her keys in her car and was needing to get to a very you know, important an engagement, an appointment just a few minutes before she locked her keys in the car. So she did what most of us would do. She called the police. The police dispatch said, um, I'm sorry, but I'm going to be unable to send any a police car there for at least 40 to 45 minutes. Realizing that God wanted her at that appointment, she immediately folded her hands and she said a prayer. And she said, Lord, please, I, I'm in a very difficult, you know, um, bind here. Please send me a good man to get me inside my car. At that very instant, a very gruff, bearded, leather jacket-wearing, tattooed individual came around the corner. He scoped out the situation and said, Ma'am, do you need help? Thirty seconds later, she was inside of her car. So she folded her hands again and she said, Lord, thank you for sending me a good man. And the guy in the leather jacket with the beard and tattoo said, Well, ma'am, I hate to disappoint you, but I'm not really a good man. As a matter of fact, I'm out on probation now for Grand Theft Auto. So she folded her hands a third time and said, Lord, thank you for sending me a professional. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there are many people in the church, unfortunately, that think that they are not good enough to do authentic ministry. And so you know what happens? We hire the job out to a handful of professionals who can get the job done. And I think people do that because they really believe and they're willing to think that God could never use me in ministry. God could never use me to reach out to someone else to build his kingdom. I mean, do you realize that in football, uh, only a few players really ever get to touch the ball? The, the, the so-called players who get to touch the ball are the ones that we call the, the money players, you know, The money players are the ones who get all the interviews after the game or before the game. They're the ones that get to carry the ball. They're the ones that get to score the touchdown. When you think about it, most everybody else on the football team accepts a supporting role. And here's the problem. The church is bought into that system. We start to imagine that there are only a few people who are spiritually mature enough to do the work that needs to be done, so we'll just let them do it. And we've identified the money players in the church. It's the pastors, it's the, it's the missionaries, it's the mom who will faithfully teach the Sunday school class over and over again because we put the arm behind her back and twist it real hard. My friends, that's not the, paint, the picture that the Bible paints for us in the New Testament. The Bible clearly teaches that all of God's people have been spiritually enlisted to do the work of ministry, not just the pastor. Being disciples who make disciples isn't the responsibility of just a few individuals. It's the sacred and shared call of every believer of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul was hinting at in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You know the passage The body is made up of many parts. And although the body is made up of many parts, it all comes together as one. And in verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 12, Paul said this, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. See, isn't it interesting? We are a very strange people, aren't we? In one part of our mind, we we, we convince ourselves and tell ourselves correctly, God can do anything. But another part of our mind, we convince ourselves, but God could never use me. And so we stop trying. And we delegate that responsibility or that area of service to someone else who we say is more qualified. No, you are qualified. You can make a difference. You in the church can carry the ball, you get to carry the ball. God has given you, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then I think there's something called the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit who has strategically gifted you with at least one spiritual gift where you can use that gift in an area of the church. You get to carry the ball right now. Henry Brooks was teaching a class on the importance of us as Christians being light in the world. He had taught the class and it was emphasizing the fact how Jesus is the light of the world and we as his disciples, we are to reflect that light to other people in dark corners that are lost. After the class was over, a gentleman came up to him and shared an extraordinary experience with him. He said, told him the story about the time that he went down into his cellar and noticed that some potatoes had begun to sprout not realizing how this had taken place because it, the potatoes were in a very dark corner, he realized, he looked up on the ceiling, that someone had hung a copper kettle on the rafter above, and that copper kettle was so brightly polished that it caught the rays from the window and reflected them onto the potatoes. And the man went on to say to Brooks, who was teaching the class, he said, you know, I may not be a gifted expositor of the word. I may not have all the gifts of teaching that others have, but one thing I can do is I can reflect the rays of Jesus Christ into all the dark corners of the world by living my life the way that God wants me to live. And the same can be said of you and of me. Remembering who we are and and whom we belong to. Recognizing what we are to do and third, Peter tells us this, the way that we reclaim the lost is reflecting on where we are to go. Reflecting on where we are to go. See, I think it's very interesting that in this passage, Peter does not use the word church in verses 4 through 12 of 1 Peter chapter 2. Now, in Greek, the word church is called ekklesia. Nowhere in this passage does Paul use the word ecclesia which I believe really fits into my first, I guess, aspect of my message about the fact that most Christians truly don't know who they are and whom they belong to. Because you can ask the average believer to say, hey, uh, can you tell me where the church is? And they'll point to a building. Simply meaning they misunderstand and have forgotten the fact that they are the church. They are a chosen people. They are a people belonging to God, a holy nation. No, in this passage, Peter does not use the word ecclesia, church, but in verse 9, he comes awful close. He says in verse 9, you are a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And those words, called you out, is not the word ecclesia, but it sure captures the meaning of what the church is called to do. The church, my friends, is called out. We are called out. But called out to where? Called out to impact the community out there, not necessarily in here. The church is called to go out, not stay in. And too many times we think that evangelism is shining our flashlights on one another. Oh, you're really good. So are you. And yes, while Peter does say that we aren't to shine our flashlights, he's not necessarily suggesting that we shine them on each other, but we take them out into the community and we shine them. Where it's dark. Where the light really needs to shine. Where the light really needs to, to be displayed. But yet, that's the problem, isn't it? The problem that most church people have is When it talks about that we are a special community, created for community, we we tend to have more of a negative view of the community out there. It's almost an us versus them type of attitude. You understand, you know, the the world is bad and the church is good, so let's just stay in here where it's good and forget them out there where it's bad. We don't need that. It's better just to give, everyone bring your popcorn and flashlights right in here and we're going to. Hunker down. Let me remind you, my friends, that the Bible does not support a sacred versus secular distinction. And what I simply mean by that is this. Jesus Christ is to be Lord of every area of our life, not just when we're in here. It's more so needed, I believe, out there. Oh, it's important in here. I understand that. But it's not that the world is bad and we are good and, well, let's just... See, the Bible's attitude is never... <laughs> it's the community. What do you expect? The Bible's attitude is more, you no, community is not supposed to be this way. It's not supposed to be that way. And so the church, you and I, we are called out We are called out of here to go into the other community to make a difference. And hence Jesus, that's why he said in Matthew 5.13, You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You understand that salt adds flavor to people's dullness in their life. Salt is a preserving agent. So we go out into the world and we live in such a way that we create a thirst for people because they see us living distinctively different. We have been, as a body of believers, as a church, we have been called out not to necessarily assimilate into the community and carry on and and share their worldviews and their ways and their values, no. No. We have been called out not to despise the community and treat it with hostility as if we are better and they are bad. We've not been called out to ignore the community, which I will remind you many churches do. Well, let's just have our own basketball league. Let's just have our own little party. Let's just have our own... No. The church has been called out to love the community. To love the community by showing the world an alternative way of living and doing life. George Barna, in his book, Rechurching the Unchurched, indicates that among the collective body of unchurched adults in the United States, he said this, 4% have been invited by a friend to attend a church service within the the past 12 months and, and did so. 23% were invited by someone, but declined. 73% have never been invited, he said. And then George Barna asked the question, well, what does this tell us? And in answering his own question, he simply said this, perhaps the most simple observation is that most unchurched people are not being pursued by anyone. My friends, we as a people belonging to God have a gift. And when we live distinctively different from them out there, trust me, they take notice. And we are to use the gifts that God has given us to serve, not just in here, but also out into the world. And that's where we are called. We are called to go out, not lock the doors and stay inside. You know, on September 11, 2001, Flight 93 crashed into a western Pennsylvania field, well short of its presumed, you know, target. When the passengers on Flight 93 realized from an airphone that the planes had been hijacked and other planes were being used as missiles to for intended targets, they realized that their time was short. A man by the name of Tom Burnett, Bar, um, Tom Burnett. 38 years old, he was an executive working for a medical research company, called his wife and said, honey, all of us are going to die. And then after saying those words, he added this, but some of us are going to do something about it. See, I don't know about you, but to me that, that is compelling theology. That is compelling theology. All of us in this room are going to die. The question is this, before we die, what are we willing to do? The passengers on flight 93 had just moments to answer that question. And many people in this room think and falsely assume we have an entire lifetime to make that decision. Well, at the next crossroads... Well, the next time I get into a difficult bind and a hard choice, then I'll make it. Next week, I promise you, Pastor Greg, I'm coming forward. Maybe tomorrow, uh, I, I make a decision then. And the longer we wait, the harder it gets to make that change and to become a changing agent in a world that desperately needs someone to stand up and be willing to say, I don't care what the coins flip or whether how many times I draw the short straw. I know it's on the heart of Jesus, and that's what I'm going to do. See, the fact of it is, is you can make a difference. We are a special community that has been created for that community, and we can have a great impact when you remember who you are and whom you belong to. When you remember what you are to do, you're to serve, you're to share, you're to go and tell. And when you recognize and truly grasp where you are to go, out into the larger community to make a difference and to live so distinctively different that people will take notice without you even uttering a word. And I think there's a great opportunity that's coming up next week with the concert that's taking place right here in Clinton. I mean, what a perfect way to go to your neighbor, to a friend, and simply say, hey, come and see. We're we're doing some pretty good things here, and and this is what Jesus has done in my life, and, you know, he can impact your life. Come, Come and see. Or maybe today's the simply day that you have a great opportunity to make a difference in your own life. Maybe today's the day that you need to make a difference by stepping out of that pew and you coming forward in invitation time and saying, You know, it's time. I need to quit playing games. I need to start getting serious. All of us, my friends, are going to die. But the question is, is today you can do something about it. What will you do? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your love and for your grace. I thank you, Father, for the opportunity to share in this way with this church. I pray that the words that...